listening to episode 55 of the Interlude podcast. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Peterson. Rachel was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2019. She underwent treatment, which included a bilateral mastectomy. At the time of her surgery, she made the difficult decision to not undergo reconstruction and to go flat. We talk a lot on this episode about how she came to that decision, what resources she used and needed to help her make that decision, why she made it, and what her life has been like after the fact. Regardless of which breast surgery you have, it's life-changing and you feel different. It can affect your body image. And so I really enjoyed this conversation as a way to really highlight a surgical choice that many people don't make or sometimes are dissuaded from making. We also speak a lot about being a cancer survivor and what life after cancer looks like. I hope you enjoy this episode and let's get right to it. Hi everyone, I'm here with Rachel Peterson. Thanks Rachel for joining me today. Thank you. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Um, Can you start by introducing yourself a little bit, telling the listeners who you are, what your story is? Absolutely. So my name is Rachel Peterson. I am 29 years old, and I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer at the age of 27, so in February of 2019. Um, And I had it in my left breast, and then it had spread to the lymph nodes on my left side. So I went through a year of chemotherapy and um, had a a bilateral mastectomy, and I made, I guess, the very unique decision at a young age to not have reconstruction and go flat. So I want to hear all about that. Um, But first, you were really young when you were diagnosed. Did you feel a mass? Do you have a family history of breast cancer? What happened? I um, felt a mass. By the time I felt it, I it was pretty big. It was really hard to miss. Um, I'm very healthy. I'm a runner, a marathoner. I treat my body like a temple. And so I hadn't really been, you know, giving myself uh, self-exams or anything. And I also don't have a family history of breast cancer. So I felt it right before I had my annual exam. So at the very end, I just happened to mention to my doctor, like, hey, I felt this pretty large mass, you know, I'm just a little concerned. And as soon as she felt it, she said, oh, okay, uh, I think we need to take it to the next level and uh, have you get an ultrasound and mammogram. And at that point, I still went into the ultrasound and mammogram, like, I'm healthy, I'm young, it's nothing, it's probably just a cyst. But as soon as the uh, radiation or the radiologist started doing the ultrasound and based on the questions and her facial expressions, I could tell that I needed to start being concerned and kind of had a reality check of, okay, this is, this might be life-changing. And so after that, I had a biopsy and um, waited the weekend and then found out on February 12th that I had breast cancer. Wow. And, And who was your support system network at that time? Yeah, the the kind of other curveball that was thrown into it was I live in Bend, Oregon, and I moved from Iowa, and I'd only been living in Bend for about four or five months before this all happened. 
And so I, I knew no one in Bend. Um, I had a very, very small network of kind of like new friends and, and new females. Uh, but I, I didn't want to go back to Iowa and, and be in a place that didn't necessarily make me happy. And so I elected to stay in Bend and I really just glommed on to these new friends. <laughs> and it was kind of, I guess, the best way to like test the boundaries of friendship is like, I'm going through this life-changing thing and I'm going to need you here to support me. I was also really fortunate that my, my family was all located in Iowa and that community just from afar really supported me and my family and made sure that whatever they needed to come out to Bend and support me was able to happen. And I, I think that's interesting that, you know, you really didn't have this close-knit group of people, but you, you know, I like that you kind of said, well, I need, I need you, right? Because a lot of times I think that, you know, you get diagnosed with cancer and people are hesitant to ask for help, you know, women especially, and they want to do it themselves. And there's almost this weakness, I think some people feel in asking for help. And but it really isn't, and it probably brought you closer to them. Oh, I have, I mean, lifelong, the, the closest friendships I've had because, you know, they saw me go through and brought me through something so terrible. And I really was kind of brought to my knees and that mm -hmm. I was on this island and I didn't have a lot of people. And so it, it just kind of forced me to forego that step of like, oh, no, I can do it on my own. I'm fine. I'm a superwoman. I just knew at that moment that I had to call, call on people. That was the only way I was going to survive. And what advice do you have for others whose family is far away? And, you know, what kind of resources, you know, did the community in Iowa provide for you or your family that you think would be helpful for others? Yeah, I, I mean, my family won't mind me sharing this, but there were many times when people offered to like buy them plane tickets to come out to Bend and kind of, again, that, that humble feeling of just accepting charity and saying like, yeah, if that's the way that people want to show love, then we're going to accept it. And so, um, you know, we also had a GoFundMe page that helped me and again, accepting that that was the way that people from afar could really show their support. I think oftentimes people who aren't right there with you feel a little bit lost of like, is, is money really the best way to support someone? And frankly, sometimes it is, especially as a young cancer survivor, you know, you don't have a lot of savings built up and, you know, you're just starting your life. And so, um, you, you know, it may not sound like the most great thing, but financially, may, my Iowa community, that was the best way they could support me. And they truly did. And that's a really good point because cancer treatment is really expensive. That That's something that we don't talk about. I just had posted something the other day. There was a study recently presented yes. that looked at young cancer survivors. So, and they said that, I mean, it's it, over half had to basically couldn't work during that time. 40% were on unpaid leave. So you take that with the fact that you're paying all this money for treatment, for meds, for you know, a wig, I mean, all of it. And you don't have money, you don't have savings. I mean, money is probably the best thing that we can yes. do for others in some cases. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it just, it also just relieves the stress, you know, like I found that, okay, I didn't have to worry about paying rent for two months. 
And so I could focus fully on treatment and healing. And, you know, I also find as a cancer survivor now, like I have a ton of medical debt, I'm self-employed. And so my health insurance is awful (laughs) and there are just not a ton of resources out there for survivors who are still financially struggling because that doesn't go away once you're declared cancer free, you know, it follows you and you still have a lot of medical debt that's built up. The repercussions of cancer treatment extend far beyond that your cancer free moment. Yes. Yeah. And in some ways it's kind of worse because it's like, you know, I got my student loans forgiven for a while because I could pull a cancer card or various things. If you say that you have cancer, suddenly organizations are like, oh, okay, we won't worry about you paying. But when you're a cancer survivor, all of a sudden that all comes flooding back in. And, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of leeway anymore. Well, we see it on, you know, on my end. So I get a lot of patients who will call and say, you know, I really can't go back to work and I'm having side effects. And, you know, you can stay out of work when you're on active cancer treatment, but afterwards, like it's hard, you know, we're kind of always backed into a tight corner because, you know, we know you have side effects, but it's not legal. Like I can't legally say you can't work. Right. Um, and, and it's hard for people and they struggle. And then, you know, a lot of times too, employers are not always the most supportive for a lot of people. Um, they try to be, but it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, it's all about the fun things you learn <laughs> going through cancer, lessons that maybe I wouldn't have wanted to learn in life. Yeah, it would have been better not to learn them. So so let's talk about the big decision to not have reconstruction. I want to break that down. Yeah. Did you have something that you like from the moment you heard that you wanted to do where it was a decision it took time to come to? It was, it was definitely a journey. So when I was diagnosed, I I'm, I'm, have a pretty athletic build, but I had quite large breasts. I had double Ds and as an athlete, I really did not enjoy that. And so frankly, when I found out that I got diagnosed with breast cancer, it was kind of a silver lining of like, oh my gosh. I can get smaller breasts. Like I just wanted like nice little A cups you can put into a strappy sports bra and you're fine. Um, And so reconstruction, I thought was going to be the easiest thing. And so I I knew I was doing a bilateral mastectomy. I went to my first plastic surgeon consult and I didn't bring anyone because again, I thought it was going to be so straightforward. And I was really fortunate to have a plastic surgeon. The first thing he said was, I'm going to show you a lot of photos of what reconstruction will look like. And they won't look like quote unquote, normal women. Breast reconstruction after breast cancer will make you feel normal underneath clothing, but you will probably never look or feel normal naked. And that was my first moment of, oh no, okay, don't think this is going to be what I want to hear. And so it's, you know, he showed me photos and I was aghast and it wasn't that he was a bad plastic surgeon or, you know, they were bad outcomes. It was just that I didn't know that is what reconstructed breasts looked like. Um, And at that point in time, it was still thought that I was going to have radiation and that brings in a whole other element to it. And then he started talking about my age and how, you know, if I'm getting reconstruction at 27, 28 I'm going to have to get replacements every 10 or so years. And so the more and more I talked about how, 
how many surgeries and how much work and the outcomes and the risks and whatnot. It was just terrifying. And I walked out of that console not, I, I just remember feeling like that was just another thing that was being robbed of me of being able to have normal breasts and like always having to, to upkeep of them and, you know, the constant work just for breasts. And so I started going down a Google search of, you know, what are other alternatives? And at that point in time, I had no idea that going flat was a thing. I kind of thought that like you had to have reconstruction. <laughs> um, and so I discovered um, going flat and I started looking for images and looking for stories. And there was really not a lot out there. There are a lot of older women who have decided to do it, um, but I couldn't really find anyone who I identified with as a young female. And so I went back and talked to my uh, surgeon, not my plastic surgeon, about it. And she was great. Um, she was surprised that I wanted to go for that option, but, um, she supported it. And when I explained to her that I, I didn't have a great relationship with my breasts anyway, that I wanted them smaller and I, I didn't really, there was something that were killing me. And at that point it was kind of like, mm -hmm. them, and if I never have them again, so be it. Um, so I would say I went into the decision kind of lightly like I was just kind of over all of the decisions that I was having to make that when I decided to go flat I didn't really think of the long term <laughs> part of it it was just like chop them off I'm done and it's one less thing I have to worry about um and so the more you know I, I did have to advocate pretty hard to my oncologist that that was the decision that I wanted to make and just other people in my life who, you know, you talk about the, the journey. And when I told them, there was a lot of advocating that I had to do as well to say that this is what I wanted. And I would still feel female after I went through with it. And afterwards, when you woke up from the surgery and the bandages came off, what, what was your reaction? It was, I mean, I, I can remember just so viscerally, you know, the like three days after surgery when you can finally take the bandages off and shower. And um, it, it was like getting a torso transplant. I remember, you know, unwinding all of the, the bandages and looking at myself in the mirror and not like being able to look for 10 seconds and then being like, I, I can't look at this anymore. I, I can't believe I made this decision. What have I done? And, you know, at that point, the scars are so raw. You have drains hanging out of you. And um, it was, I felt ugly. I felt maimed. And again, it wasn't because I, you know, my surgeon did a terrible job. It was just, it yep. was so, you can't really prepare yourself for what it's going to look and feel like. Um, and so I would say it probably took me a solid like three to four months to when I, you know, unclothed a shower to look at myself in the mirror and to accept that this is the decision that I had made. And I don't regret it. I don't. There were moments where I regretted it, but um, it was, I, I don't think I was fully prepared for the psychological um effects of removing a, a part. And what helped you 
kind of come around to the acceptance and letting go of the regret? Yeah. I, so I'm a writer. I'm a writer at heart. I wrote a lot. I, I journaled a ton about it. I also, um, I have a really good friend who's a photographer and she came out to bend, I want to say like eight weeks after I'd had my bilateral mastectomy and we got up at sunrise and went out to one of the Alpine lakes and um, she took photos of me uh, topless and showcased in all of my bald and scarred beauty what I looked like in that moment and being able to see myself through her lens and her viewpoint and have these like stunning photos of me as my, you know, my new body, my new self really helped me accept that I was feminine and I was strong and I was powerful. And the decision that I had made was the right one for me. And so it just, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess seeing myself through her lens was just the moment where it kind of clicked of like, oh, there is beauty in this and those scars and, you know, how I look now are, are so powerful. Maybe the most powerful I felt. Well, it's telling a story, right? Of where you've been and how far you've come. And it's it's just beautiful representation of that. Right. Right. And I, you know, as I mentioned, when I was trying to figure out about going flat, it it also clicked when, you know, I had those photos done of like, oh, this is something I need to share and talk about and showcase and not in a, you know, trying to compliments way, but I want other young women out there to see that this is a really valid option and that you can still feel really beautiful and really powerful and really feminine. And how did you reconcile your new body with who you were as a runner, as an athlete? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you put the two together? Yeah. Cancer survivor, marathoner, like what was that process like? Yeah. It's that's been really hard. I because I identify so much with being a runner and an athlete and feeling so strong and I had very naive ideas that I would keep up my intense fitness regimen during chemo. That did not happen. <laughs> And so, you know, that rebuilding process kind of happens simultaneously, physically and mentally. So as I'm rebuilding, rebuilding my stamina and my muscle, I'm also kind of brick by bit, brick rebuilding who I am as a person. And so it was frustrating in a lot of ways. I wanted to feel okay and fit and powerful. And I wanted it to happen in this snap of my fingers. And I... I so wanted to get rid of the term or the label cancer survivor. Like I wanted to ditch that completely. And I don't know when it happened, but just over time I realized like that is part of my story and that is who I am. And it doesn't have to be my only label. I can have it live in conjunction with, you know, the label of, daughter and sister and business owner and runner and they can all live in in harmony instead of you know in in disconnect and talk to me about how your fitness journey you know so what were you doing before chemo what did you do during chemo and then what was your recovery like because 
we do see a lot of people, we, we know in, in cancer that chemotherapy affects your cardiorespiratory function, that you may feel be at the top, you know, shape of your life, and then it just declines just by the virtue of getting chemo. So tell me pre, post. Yeah, pre uh, chemo and cancer, I mean, before cancer diagnosis, I mean, I was running five to six times per day. I, you know, my long runs were like 12 to 13 miles. I was training for a Chicago marathon. I was like, I was a runner through and through. Um, and then I would say that declined during, I kept it up up until my second chemo treatment. So I was going once every three weeks mm-hmm. to get chemo. And I would say around the second chemo treatment, I I would run probably like once a week. And then I just found that it would take me <laughs> so long to feel like I could run again. And then it became to the point where I would try to run. It would take me like, it would just mm-hmm. so much that it wasn't, I just felt like it wasn't realistic to, to keep doing it. Um, and you know, then it comes kind of like a mental hurdle yeah. of mm-hmm. like, okay, well, if I'm not running, do I even need to get out of bed anytime during the day? And, um, I had a ton of GI issues. And so I also wasn't eating uh, a ton and, and had a lot of calories and like my wins got to be that I was able to walk down my driveway to get the mail during the day. That was kind of became my exercise. Um, I would say after treatment and after my mastectomy, again, because I didn't have reconstruction, the recovery process wasn't as intense or strenuous. And so I would say like four weeks after my bilateral mastectomy, I was like, all right, let's go. I'm ready. And that was very, I shouldn't have done that. I um, probably should have had a slower build back into things. Um, but I'm back. I mean, I'm really back to kind of my full fitness regimen. Now there are many days where I do feel like I need to alter it or, you know, adjust for fatigue and whatnot. And that's, that's hard. That's hard to accept that that is maybe like the new reality, but at the flip side, I am running and that's a miracle in itself. Are you training for anything right now? I know it's hard because everything. I know I'm doing. Yeah, I'm uh, hoping. I don't know if it'll happen. Um, there's a an ultra race that I do every year at the end of July, and so I'm I'm kind of just training for that. Is in it'll happen, and if it doesn't, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a DIY race or something. <laughs> I know. Hopefully things will start to get back to some semblance. Oh, I know. It's like, it's so hard to see that glimmer of hope, but not know when it's going to happen. <laughs> and and what about like the practical logistics of being flat? You know, so do you wear a bra? Like, what does it feel yeah. like? Like, what kind of clothes do you buy now? Oh my gosh. These are all things I wish I would have like known ahead of time because it's a ton of experimentation. So I don't wear a bra. I do still wear a sports bra. And I think that's more of just a, I don't know, like kind of a um, comfort or a, I'm so used to wearing it. It's part of my routine. Um, and so I still do wear a sports bra when I work out, but every, like, I don't wear bralettes or anything during regular, like wearing regular clothes, which frankly is kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's like one less thing to worry about. It's very I don't know when you yeah. would complain about that. 
Um, I do find that clothing wise, you know, because I am, you cut out like some of like cut into your chest wall. And so you're a bit concave, like where your breasts would be and your sternum uh, kind of sticks out a bit. And so there are certain materials and styles of clothing that I probably wouldn't feel comfortable wearing like something that's super tight and clingy um, or something that's like a bit more tight and sheer. It's, it is very obvious then that like, oh, this person does not have breasts and she's a bit misshapen. Again, if someone else wants to rock that, like that's good for them. I just don't think I have, I feel comfortable doing that. Um, swimsuit shopping is also really hard like finding a one piece or two piece that fits and like doesn't write up because I like you know your breasts kind of support the swimsuit and so I found that that's really difficult to find something um I also think I don't have any nerves, so I can't, like, when I, you know, touch my chest now, they cut all of the nerve endings, and so you don't have any feeling, and that in itself is probably one of the hardest things to get used to. I think there, there are daily activities, like, you know, shaving under your arms, because I also don't have feeling there, or, like, putting on deodorant that really still uh, jar me, because you don't, feel that and then it kind of like your brain recognizes like oh right I I don't have breasts anymore um and those are just things that again like I'm a over a year out from this and I'm still not used to it um I'm sure I eventually will but I just those are hard to prepare for I can imagine I mean there's all these things that we take for granted that you don't <laughs> recognize as part yeah. of it what about, I mean, have you had to have the conversation with somebody after this about, you know, being flat or, you know, how would you recommend approaching it to, you know, I mean, a lot of people struggle with dating after cancer. And so this I'm sure adds a whole other element to it. It's so hard. I wish I had like a script or something to give people because yeah, like, you know, there's the layers of like, okay, you're young you're probably menopausal after breast cancer and you don't have breasts and you're a cancer survivor. Like there, and it's like, when do you bring that up? How do you bring that up? And my therapist told me something really powerful. I, I found that when I was first dating after cancer and, you know, I felt like I owed every single date my story. Like I had to bring it up right away and like go deep into the details. And that's a lot, like that's terrifying. And my, my therapist said, you own your story. Like you don't owe it to anyone. And if you're going on a date and it doesn't feel great, or, you know, you think he's not worthwhile, like you don't have to share that part of you. And so that was a, that flipped a switch in me of like, again, kind of that cancer survivor label of there's so many other parts of me that are so much more important and interesting. And eventually, yes, if this goes further, I do owe that to him. I, you know, I do, I do think a lot, like I haven't found a partner and I think it's really easy as a cancer survivor to compare your pre-cancer self to your post-cancer self. And you wonder like, oh, would that guy have followed up on a date if I wasn't a cancer survivor or if I had breasts or whatnot. Um, 
it's 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 really hard and I you know I'm I'm still single I don't have a partner so like I don't have the success um but I I I think that if I could you know list out like what I still struggle with and think about the most I think that's probably the number one thing is like will someone love me and accept me despite going flat and being a cancer survivor and that's uh you know everyone all my friends like share platitudes of like oh of course you're beautiful and like blah blah but when you're in it it's it's sometimes hard to believe that it's it's hard you know I think that whatever our insecurities are right we all have insecurities whatever they may be you bring that to the forefront of whatever you're dealing with in the moment, right? And it takes time. And I mean, you're also only a year out. So I think that it takes, takes time, you know, for everything to kind of heal because, and I always talk to my patients about, you're not done after cancer. It had however long it took to get through the treatment and the surgery and the radiation. It's at least that plus more for the healing and the recovery. And, figuring out what your new life is like. Right. And it's like, this, it's terrifying as well. I think I had pretty grandiose ideas of what my life after cancer is going to be like, because you basically spend a whole year, however long treatment is, imagining it. And then when it happens, you are suddenly paralyzed that you won't live up to your own expectations or that you'll kind of waste away the second chance at life. And so um, I think that is also something that like I hadn't really read or heard about is that there is this paralysis of life. Real life suddenly comes flooding back in. You don't necessarily know what to do with it or how to handle it. It's true because you know, there's a, like you said, you could put a lot on the back burner when you're actively, actively getting treatment. And then after you're expected to (laughs) like enter back fully into this world. But I think what you said was really important, this expectation that you're wasting your second chance, right? And everything you hear, when you hear survivor stories, you know, they're, they're all positive. And I was given this second chance at life and I, I've learned not to waste any day. And of course we get that, right? Like, but also I think that puts so much pressure on the individual person. Like you can have a bad day, you know, I think like sometimes there's a lot of pressure on like to not have a bad day, to be grateful for everything, but like it's okay to get upset or to get angry at the small things. Like that's part of life. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like it's also human and, you know, cancer doesn't remove that part of you. And yeah, I, I think a lot of things that I see are kind of this like, positive vibes only and like be relentlessly positive and that's just so it's not it's not possible and it's not realistic because being a cancer survivor you know you're right like your story is not over the journey is not over it takes so much time to heal and reconcile with what you went through and to be expected to just kind of like get back into it and act like everything's fine is um it's it's really toxic and it is and you know this whole notion of toxic positivity i mean that's exactly what it is and i think part of it is and you know society and the people around you 
want you to be happy, right? Like mm -hmm. then, like a lot of people struggle with, and they'll tell me, my family feels that everything should be back to normal, you know, because you're done with treatment. Mm -hmm. And because if you're happy and you feel like, well, I'm done, I'm fine now, they don't have to worry about you, right? Like it's not an uncomfortable, awkward situation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why people say like during treatment, they have so much support. And when they're done, everyone's like, yeah, you're done, bye. And yeah. You're like, wait, I'm on this island alone. I don't have, you know, so what I need you the most. <laughs> exactly. And so there is, I think it's very like, and, and look, the media loves human, you know, positive stories. <laughs> I fall cancer. I'm better now, you know, rah, rah, rah. But that's not the reality. And I think social media has a, I mean, social media, I think is wonderful for the cancer community because it allows, you know, especially young women to find others in their scenario, you know, and, and can connect. But it, it really paints a lot of realist, unrealistic expectations, I think. It does. It totally does. And you, you know, of course, I follow a ton of breast cancer survivors and I always have to remind myself, like, I don't know how far they're at in their journey. And I also don't know, like, diagnoses are also different and circumstances are also different. And so when I do see someone who's like shining and thriving and I'm having a terrible day and feeling very, you know, cancery, I, I do always have to check myself of, you know, I don't actually know what their reality is. Exactly. Sometimes, I mean, we know that Instagram is a highlight reel and we know that yeah. <laughs> post happy things. And partly sometimes it makes them, it gives them that lift that they need in their mood to post something happy. Um, but you're right, I think. And sometimes it's okay to stay back, step back from social media and say, you know, this person isn't, um, it's too much for me right now. Right, right. And yeah, like to check out a bit is, oh, I mean, in all aspects of life with social media. So I had a couple of weeks ago, I had um, Kelly on my podcast, who's a triple negative um, survivor. And she posts, she hosts this um, triple negative, like Thriver Zoom group. Yeah, and we were talking, and she says, you know, sometimes it's not, it's, it's too much for somebody. And she says, I tell you, go, like it's okay to leave and come back when you're ready, and we'll be here for you. But I think that that's really important because sometimes we get sucked in, and it yeah, can be really hard. Oh yeah, and you feel a bit obligated to be like, okay, I followed along with their journey, and like you know, cheer them on. But it, I think the everlasting cancer card is that sometimes like you do get to be really selfless in what <laughs> you need and be yeah, you should. About. I mean, I think at the end of it, you have to put yourself, you know, the whole thing about like, you can't be good to others unless you put your, you know, you gotta put your life jacket on first or like your life vest, whatever, whatever, you know, the analogy, but you, you have to take care of yourself um, before you can do be what you need to be to other people. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I think that's something I always remind myself too, because again, like you also kind of imagine yourself as this like breast cancer survivor, wonder woman afterwards, and you're going to help everyone and, you know, like pick up their story and their journey. And, um, that also takes time because I, I think it can be really triggering as well to see someone yeah. else going through what you've gone through. And, um, I, I've had, yeah, I've had to take a step back sometimes and be like, I know that they have other people in their community and I can provide for them later on. But right now it's just, I can't do it. I think that's really important. I've had people call me and say, you know, my friend was diagnosed and I, I feel like I, I want, I need to be there for her, but I can't right now. 
And that's okay. And I think you can be honest and say, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm thinking of you, but I can't physically or mentally be present right now. You know, it's, it's so ironic because I feel like you kind of become this cancer guru. Like I've had so many people be like, oh, my so-and-so's grandmother's so-and-so is diagnosed with not breast cancer, different kind of cancer. Would you mind talking to her? And it's like, no, I, no, I, don't, I don't know. And I do mind. Yeah. And there's a reason support groups exist. And that way people can go to those support groups. But I know you're right. I mean, when people hear I treat cancer, they'll tell me about like so-and-sos. And I, you know, I love hearing people's stories, but like, I'm like, this is not a cancer I've ever treated in my life. Like, I'm happy to like direct you to somebody who can help you. Um, but no, it's true. I mean, I, I think, and it, you know, at the end of it, people are storytellers and everyone wants to share their story and experience. And so I, it is always coming from a good place, but it can be really hard. Right. right. Yeah. And you know, you just learn to be graciously say, I can't do that right now. <laughs> exactly. And that's okay. You know, I think that again, it's that self-care and self-care is not massages and spa days. It's, it's this kind of stuff, you know, it's yeah. moving your body, it's fueling your body and it's, it's protecting your mental health and your space. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you would want people to know? I guess, you know, my main kind of mission or through all of this, especially about going flat and sharing my story and, you know, is I never, I never want my dream would be that a young female would never have to advocate like I did to medical professionals and other people to say, yes, I want to go flat. I never want someone to have to fight hard to convince other people that her decision is okay. What are some, like, are there phrases as your language that people should use, you know, that you found helpful? Yeah, I think, um, my biggest thing is I would love people came at it more from a place of curiosity rather than like, oh, what? You're, why are you doing that? You know, I would love for people to just ask kind of how you did it. Like, well, what went into it and what was the journey? Um, and I think there's also a lot of, there's a lot of sneaky language that people can use to, you know, insinuate that like, oh, do you, are you less feminine or do you feel like a female or do you feel beautiful after this? And it, you, that's really hard to have a response to and to continually say that, yes, to defend your femininity feels very difficult. Um, I also think coming from just a, you know, a, a functionality and biological um, factor, you know, I, I can't have children, number one. And so, you know, there have been a, I remember going to my physical therapist after my mastectomy and there was a older woman sitting in the waiting room and she said, well, how are you going to breastfeed your children? And it was just, it was so jarring to have to figure out how am I supposed to respond to that in a way that isn't like, well, number one, I can't have children. And number two, I don't want to have children. And number three, there are other ways to nourish children. Yeah. You know, so I think um, to culminate, I guess, is just I wish people would come at it from a place of curiosity, like anything else that people decide to do through through the cancer journey. 
you know, at the end of the day, everyone's journey is like their own and it's their own life and they're making these life or death decisions and who, no one should question that. Absolutely. And I think that as hopefully as there's more voice given to going fight and not having reconstruction, that it will become a little bit, you know, more accepted because right. I I think it's still fairly rare um, because, again, so much of society has tied breasts into being feminine and really has nothing to do with that. But that's the war, you know, that's kind of the history of it. And I think once it gets more widely accepted, hopefully people will be more accepting. I guess, you know, there are medical practitioners who listen to this. I was so fortunate that I had a surgeon who performed a bilateral, bilateral mastectomy that knew that like, this is the decision that I wanted and made sure that it cosmetically looked really great. And unfortunately I've heard other stories from other women who, you know, the surgeon left extra skin and it, you know, it just didn't, they didn't truly understand that they really wanted to go flat and didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily get them with a great outcome. And so, yeah, I hope that it becomes you know, there are more people who vocalize about it and talk about it and normalize it, but then that translates into better, uh, you know, cosmetic outcomes. Because at the end of the day, like, you still also want to look nice. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that no matter, wh- no matter what, whether you choose reconstruction or not, your body image is going to be affected. I mean, they, your, your surgeon was right. And I give him a lot of credit. People wake up from the surgery and go, wait a second, like, what is this? Um, And so I think that he, by by saying to you, well, look, they're not going to really, it's not a plastic surgery, you know, your boob, your boob job. (laughs) That's not what this is. So I think no matter what, you have to reconcile this new identity and this new body image, whether it's flat or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause reconstructed breasts are not, yeah, it's not a free boob job. It's not, you know, the same thing as having your, your real breasts. And there's such a, it's such a psychological shift. And I, yeah, I, I just hope that more women can be a bit more prepared for that. Um, you know, whoever they're talking through and going through that. This was fantastic and such just a, an educational um, perspective. I mean, it's going to be really helpful for everybody listening. Where can listeners find you if they're interested in connecting with you further? Yeah. Yes, they can find me on Instagram. It's at Rachel M. Pete. Yeah, and there, I, you know, that's where I'm pretty vocal about my journey. And then I link to um, my blog where I've written about going flat. Fantastic. Thank you again. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rachel. I hope you enjoyed it. She was so honest and open about everything that she has been through. And I hope that it helps people who are thinking about going flat or who are thinking about their surgical choices. You know, at the end of the day, there's not one right choice for anyone. And it's so important to have the information and the education that you need to be empowered to make the right decision for you. And that goes far beyond reconstructive surgery, but really anything in cancer treatment as as well as in, in life. If you did enjoy the episode, I would be honored if you can take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts. 
because that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to more listeners. Have a wonderful weekend. Get the vaccine if you can. Sign up to get the vaccine if you can. Stay safe, wear a mask, social distance, and I'll see all of you soon.